I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, <laughs> technology, what is it all about? I grew up watching The Man on the Moon. Um, I watched JFK speeches. Yep. And so to me, the only place to really scale my professional ambitions was in Silicon Valley. And you had that sense as a kid or as a teenager? I, or... And Absolutely. And so I still remember playing the We Choose to Go to the Moon speech. I was 11 or 12 years old, and I watched it over and over and oh, wow. over again. Because this wasn't necessarily a country, but it was a state of mind where anything could be possible. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. How is everybody doing? I'm doing fabulously. I'm just back from week off all as well. I'm feeling energized. And this week we are back to talk about AI because, well, you know, it's 2023. But we're going to dive into a different part of the story. So if you believe, as many AI utopians out here in these parts do, that we are on the cusp of a new era of humanity, that we are entering the AI age, which in practical terms would mean we are going to be surrounded and served by machines that are going to be doing a ton of stuff for us, from self-driving cars to personal robots. Of course, Elon Musk is saying his you know, Tesla bot, whatever you want to call it, is going to be bigger than the car. It's going to change the world, blah, blah, blah. Virtual assistants, the like, you know the story. If you believe that that is going to happen and to, going to scale to the planet, to all of our many billions, it will also require a fundamental remaking of the hardware and software to make those machines go. Now, why is that? Today, everything runs on the cloud. And, you know, it's because it's cheap, it's plentiful, it's readily available. But that's a problem. And I'll give you one example. Famously, in San Francisco uh, this past summer, a bunch of self-driving cars all of a sudden all stalled all at once in the middle of the street, creating a huge, massive traffic jam. And the reason was there was a concert. So there was a lot of people in one concentrated area. They were all trying to use their phones. And basically, the lines jammed, which meant that for these cars, their connection to the cloud got cut off. So it was basically a computer says no type situation in mass and you have this problem and it was just a really interesting kind of visceral example of 
what's wrong with relying on basically sending data to these data centers and then it's sending it back and happening in real time. It's it's a very imperfect solution, especially when you're talking about stuff that requires real high levels of safety, like, for example, self-driving cars. So what you need is a new generation of super high-powered chips and software that can ride along inside of our cars, inside of our e-bikes, inside of our phones, that can process vast amounts of data in real time and run these powerful machines without having to kind of send data back and forth to remote data centers. In other words, we are all drunk on the cloud. We need to get sober. And the way to do that is this new layer of software and chips. And that is what this week's guest is working on. Krishna Rangasai is the founder and CEO of a company called SEMA.ai. And the company has raised about $200 million to build what Krishna hopes will be this vital infrastructure for this new age of smart machines. And as you can probably imagine, this is not easy. But he comes at this problem having worked in the industry for decades. And SEMA has been at this now for four years. They've made some pretty significant strides, which we're going to talk about. And of course, they were doing this long before anyone was really even thinking about OpenAI and ChatGPT and the kind of this AI age, which we are now supposedly entering. So in any event, Krishna has a great story to tell also about just becoming a founder in his 50s, how he ended up here from India, the problems that he saw, why and how he plans to solve it, and what he thinks this world will look like if and when we are surrounded by these kind of new army of smart machines doing things for us that today seem outlandish. So it's a fun pod. I think you're really going to enjoy it and draw some really interesting lessons and fun anecdotes. So without further ado, here he is, Krishna Rangasai of Seema.ai. Enjoy. Thank you for having me here to your office, in the nice corner office with a window, not in the holding cell in the back. Appreciate the move. Can we start with a very simple kind of a little bit ridiculous question of what are you doing at SEMA and how is it going to kind of make the world a better place? We've seen AI and ML scale into the cloud in the last two decades. It's really changed companies, lifestyles, perspectives. And we're also experiencing it on the mobile footprint. So the mobile experience, the consumer experience is there, the cloud experience is there. But our thesis in starting the company was that everything in between is kind of left behind. What do you mean? So everything in the physical world, things that we touch on an everyday basis as human beings, vision systems, robotics, industrial automation, automotive, medical systems, they're still staying back with 40, 50-year-old archaic architectures. So technology really hasn't refreshed. So we've all seen like, you know, the the news items of like an Amazon warehouse where there's a bunch of robots zooming around. And we've all seen the the news items of the cruise car driving with no driver. Mm-hmm. Those are working based on current technologies, no? No. They're AI and ML based. Okay. So they would not be able to do what they do without AI and ML being the core enabling technology for that. And they're doing that because they're out on the ragged edge. And what you're saying is that the rest of the industry is not, and you need to help pull, That's the, correct. pull them into the future. That's correct. So the core element, actually, those are two really good examples. The core element for both of them is really one of, number one, locali- locality. So you need to be self-aware of where you are. You then need to be able to do pathfinding. Yeah. 
so to figure out where you want to go. Then it's about perception. Those are massively complicated computing paradigms that cannot be viably done without a shift of AI in ML. Right. So how are you going to take us to the promised land? Slowly. <laughs> <laughs> so this, so, so we're obviously living with things that have been around for 50, 70 years, yeah. right? So industrial automation is a very old industry. Medical is a very old industry, right? So if you look at CT scan, ultrasound equipment, people have evolved architectures, but the fundamental underlying principles are 70, 80 years old. And these industries take a long time to transition. Right. So they, um, the other complexity for these industries is, unlike the hyperscaler world where there are seven companies fundamentally leading the charge, here it's a lot of diffused innovation, tens of thousands of companies globally. So it's a very different problem statement to really scale AI and ML for these markets. But we are now beginning to hit the tipping point for every one of these applications where it's increasingly become untenable to stay with the traditional approach. So each one is in a different phase of adoption. And the earliest macro application that's really adopting computer, uh, adopting AI and ML at the edge is really computer vision applications. So things that touch images and video have now hit the tipping point earlier than any other application. When you say at the, at the edge for the folks at home, what do you mean? So unfortunately, everybody's over-abused the term edge. Yes. So everybody's definition of the edge is different. So the easiest definition that people have unfortunately uh, created is anything not the cloud is called the edge. So we have sharpened the definition to what we focus on as the embedded edge. Now our definition is it's not the cloud. It's not the mobile devices. It's not the very peripheral IoT or uh, Internet of Things devices. It's things anywhere in between. And so I would say if you were to look at a power performance, it's really around 5 watt, 10 watt, 20 watt capable systems. So smart vision systems, robotics, industrial automation, aerospace and defense applications, medical applications. So these create the genre. And so it's a massive market if you really think about it. If you look at the amount of intelligent semiconductor consumed on an annual basis for these market segments I'm referring to, it's 40 billion. Right. right. So it's a massive market. And, and one day when it holistically absorbs AI and ML, our thesis is that it's going to be bigger than the cloud. How so, big is the cloud right now, money-wise? So, so it depends on whose math you yeah, yeah. look at, but it's 60 billion plus, right? So, so And it came kind of from left field and kind of became the largest growth driver for the industry in the last 10, 20 years. The cloud will remain and the cloud will continue to grow, but it's now more a game of scale and TCO at the cloud. TCO. Total cost of ownership. So it's really about profitability and it's really cloud as a service, if you will, right? So people are trying to monetize the cloud investment. The hyperscalers are trying to provide new services and enable that. Architectural innovation and new thinking is going to be driven more at the edge just because of the new complexity. And it's the next gold rush for AI and ML. So you're like the plumbers of the AI age. Correct. Right. That's not the greatest analogy, but, I, <laughs> but, but I'll take it as the best analogy for the day. Yes, we are the plumbers. <laughs> um, 
And so where are you in terms of digging trenches and putting the pipe down and all of that stuff? Where are you in terms of building that out? I think we are now four years into the journey. Uh, You started the company four years ago. We started the company four years ago. And I feel like our timing was right. Was it founded? And be honest, was it founded because you saw AI was coming? Because now everybody's like, I'm an AI company. No, I I, I think (laughs) this I can honestly say... I had a dream. <laughs> Did no, you, I, no. So th- this was clear to me when we right. started the company, right? So I came to the conclusion that for me to start a startup, folks on the cloud would be really head- hitting my head against the wall. I have never believed in the, I'll get a 1% market share against the 99% yeah. market share. Yeah. That has never been, to me, a successful way to approach. So picking a new problem that nobody's really prioritizing was a better way to go. No doubts. I mean, I think I spent 20 years studying this space in my previous company. So I helped build a $4 billion business in these markets. 20 years is a long time to learn, right? So I learned customers. I learned the challenges they have. I studied architectures. I studied why people move the slow. All of that learning shaped and rationalized for me that no doubts AI and ML is going to be a big thing and big thing at the edge. And so I wouldn't say we pioneered the space. There are a few companies that had done pioneering work in this. But I would say we are increasingly becoming the lead company, shaping thinking, and also architectural choices at the edge. And so when you're talking about architecture, you're talking about software. You're also talking about hardware. Correct. So what are you building? So we are building a full stack, what we call a purpose-built platform for the edge. So we build our own chip. It's called the ML SOC. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so you may not give us high marks for marketing, but 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 machine uh, learning system on a chip. Yes. Okay. Machine learning system on a chip, and I think it's kind of a new product category, and I'll spend a few minutes explaining that. So that's the silicon that we provide. We have an enabling software development environment called Palette. So Palette with MLSOC is these, the product offering that we provide. So people program their application. They use Palette to map their application onto our chip, the MLSOC. And the reason why we call that an MLSOC, the ML portion is probably obvious, is today the $40 billion that I referred to in this market space that's consumed is really fundamentally system-on-a-chip applications, classic system-on-a-chip we are the only company that's combining ML in an SOC form factor and providing that to our customers. What does that mean? So our thesis is this. If somebody has been using some legacy for 40, 50 years, they're not going to abandon their legacy and completely switch over into a new ML paradigm overnight. No. These are massive companies. They have people. They have culture. So our thesis is we need to support legacy from day one. So if you support legacy from day one and they can get their existing experience transferred over, then they're comfortable moving portions of the problem into the new world. So we are the only company so far that really is providing an ML SOC experience. So they take their SOC application, they map it, it works from day one. Then they can move portions of the SOC problem into an ML environment. So we truly believe that that combination makes us a more interesting choice. For so you're basically company. just dropping into the current supply chain. Basically. That's correct. Right. That's correct. Right. Yeah. yeah. And is the idea then that your ML SOC would be like, I don't know, in the future, in a car, in a robot, 
whatever. It's the kind of the the brain inside the Correct. machine. Correct. So it will be the new computer yeah. that will be inside all these products. But the benefit and the difference is that it will do localized processing exactly where the data is created. So, for example, this is, and yeah. you can tell me whether I'm wrong. I just wrote a big story on Cruise, so I, this is all fresh in my mind. Cruise, for example, when they announced, I think it was two months ago, 24-hour operations in San Francisco. All these autonomous taxis going around. And then there was a big concert. And then they all stopped. Yeah. Because it was like, everybody's using their phones, and basically the networks are jammed, and they can't communicate with the cloud. Therefore, it's like computer says no, and you have a 12-car pileup, basically. Yeah. Yep. What you're saying is that because this would be done locally, you wouldn't have to send it to the cloud. Therefore, you don't run into that problem. So let me separate two things. I have many good <laughs> friends at Cruise. So I'm yes, not digging yes, them for anything yes. at all. But conceptually, yes. We create shirts that say, friends don't let friends use the cloud. <laughs> I like that. So we, that's, that's, we, a, that's like real nerd Silicon that's Valley right. dig. I, 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 you, you will get it nowhere else in the planet except in Silicon Valley. You know? so, but, but fundamentally, people are over-abusing the cloud yeah. to really solve for problems that it should not be solving for. Yeah. Right? And so it's not to say that it's a cloud versus the edge. No doubts they'll coexist. But we are too lopsided. And so there are yeah. three reasons why there will be now a natural separation of what will stay at the edge and what will be at the cloud. One is for localized compute. So there are many safety critical applications where you better compute where the data is being created locally. You cannot tolerate the latency of going to the cloud or maybe even the safety element of going to the cloud. You need instantaneous processing. Robotics is a good example. Automotive is a good example, right? So, so latency is one key element. The second one is privacy and security. There is way too much information. Yeah, yeah. Flying I mean, we, around. We, yeah, we, we've all heard about ChatGPT being a two-way door and many enterprises have lost their privacy and data, right? So privacy and security will guide new choices in edge compute. The third one is total cost of ownership. The cloud's a very expensive proposition and it's a big hammer for not every problem needs a big hammer, right? So you need a toolkit. And yep. so, so, so there are many, many problems that are well-suited. And I think enterprises, as they get smart about data and monetization, greed will also play a big part in that people who are like, why am I giving all the money to the cloud guys? Why not I monetize my own data that I create? So all these dynamics are going to start shifting. And, and so I think you'll see that the edge is going to increasingly become top of mind for every company going forward. It's kind of like you guys are like... Um tech hipsters like you're going back to the old school you know it's like before cloud and everything was like <laughs> over there you're like no we're going to process exactly. our stuff here that's right that's right. right so i've joked we are the mom and pop shop enablers right right right, right. but i think if you really look at it i mean it's it's I, I, there are big rocks that are the hyperscalers there are many many companies and to analogous draw this is pebbles the problem why ai and ml is really not scaled is there's not very high volume per customer to justify a whole lot of investment. And this yeah. is why, to us, the combination of the software and the hardware is key. And software really being increasingly more important because these folks need to be self-managed. They need to be able to do things on their own. Because if I have to do custom things for every one yeah. of them, then we yeah. can't scale, right? So, so the big problem in servicing the edge and part of the reason why people have not done a good job focusing on it is 
Software scalability is the biggest Achilles heel in the AI ML industry today. The very best of these companies struggle with software. That's the big challenge. And the other th thing, and maybe you can illuminate, we keep hearing about the end of Moore's law, and you're talking about enabling local processing of vast oceans of data. Mm -hmm. How are you doing that? So Moore's law from a process technology scaling, no doubt is slowing or yeah. actually maybe even hitting its diminishing return, right? And so there's so much written about this topic. But there's a lot of degrees of freedom left in architecture. People have been using process technology as maybe a primary vehicle to get performance and power gains. And no doubts, I think the ex it's becoming an expensive game and it's also getting very diminishing returns. The large lever of opportunity is really in architectural choices. And I'll give you a proof point, our own little company. So we participated in an ML benchmarking effort called ML Perf. And we submitted to a category, which is the edge category, closed edge category that we participate in. We are the first startup to be better than NVIDIA in performance and power. Right. And we stayed back in 10-year-old technology, silicon-wise, and they're in a more advanced technology. And we're able right. to do it because our innovation is really more architectural than really silicon. And architecture that equals software. Correct. So we right. have leveraged software and its benefits in different unique right. ways. And we have, we have also innovated on the silicon, but the combination of the two maps into our architecture. I think there are so many degrees of freedom and there are so many smart people in the world that will follow similar trails that we have picked. Right. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And you said you started the company four years ago? Yep. Where are you from? Let's go all the way back. Ah. Oh. My God, I, this is now becoming a shrink <laughs> session. I was born, no. <laughs> I was born in Chennai in okay. India, and I grew up in Bangalore yeah. in India. And much like I think many folks in my generation, I grew up watching The Man on the Moon. Um, I watched JFK speeches. Yep. And so to me, the only place to really scale my professional ambitions was in Silicon Valley. And you had that sense as a kid or as a teenager? I, or? And absolutely. And so I still remember playing the We Choose to Go to the Moon speech. I was 11 or 12 years old, and I watched it over and over and oh, wow. over again. Because this wasn't necessarily a country, but it was a state of mind where anything could be possible, right? And so that was supremely attractive about choosing to be at a place where you could really do anything. And who you were meant nothing. What you do really right. matters, right? And so, so it really attracted me to move here. 
did my education and I spent 30 years in, interestingly, every company that I've been has been acquired by somebody else. So none of the companies <laughs> I ever worked with is still around as a standing right. company. Well, but before we get there, yeah. so how did you come from, did you go through the IIT system? I have a personal fascination with IIT because it feels like <laughs> it feels like the hardest thing to kind of get in and get through. And I'd love to just understand like what your experience was. Yeah, so no, it, it so actually I did not go through the IIT process. Many of my okay. good friends did. Yeah. So I went through a similar parallel process called the NIT. What's the NIT? So National Institute of Technology. Okay. Much like the IITs. There's an NIT network also in India. But it's amazing how many people apply to get into engineering. It's amazing, a filtration process. And very few make it across the finish very line. Very high pressure. It's a very high pressure environment. And, and, and some days I really think that kids growing up in the U.S. now have a bigger pressure than, than I was growing up in India. But no doubts, I think being 16... And a couple of exams dictating the trajectory of your of life. your entire life, basically. <laughs> and that's, is, isn't it quite clear that that's... It, it, it is. And so in my generation, and I think, I don't think it's dramatically changed a lot, though it's easing up in India too by now, is you have only two professions growing up in my generation in India. Yeah. You're either an engineer or you're a doctor. Just two. And otherwise, if you're like the aspirational, I'm going to... Yeah. <laughs> so luckily, my aptitude was suited for it. And so um, I definitely had very nurturing atmosphere to grow up in. And this is all I really enjoy. So it was really wonderful to be able to take up. But, but I had every day, uh, what I think it enabled me to understand was that I'm reasonable, but my God, there are billions better than me, right? Yeah. So that confidence and humility, I think, has served me well even today in that well, because you made it through a very thin funnel, right? Absolutely. And, and, and I have huge respect for, and actually, man, my bigger respect is for people that stayed back in India. It, it's really hard oh. to scale businesses in India and really be successful being in India. In some ways, it's hard anywhere in the world. But in some ways, the system here is better suited for extrapolating talent and leveraging the local yes. ecosystem. Yeah. It is not that easy in India. It's definitely getting easier now. But for my generation, I would say I can't peg myself as a success. But it was a lot easier for me to live out my dreams and yeah. connect the dots and VC network and education system, relationships, ecosystem, right? I think Silicon Valley has a lot going right for it. And there's a reason why people are not able to mimic this formula easily elsewhere in the world. So that helps you, you know, because it automatically gives you a better correlation to who you are and what you do as a good correlation to society translating to success. That is very nonlinear in any society. Yeah. Right? So for my friends that stayed back in India, I have huge respect for them. And they've all done amazingly well. And that is, I think, a lot more resilience than I think I, I took the easy path. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and, so you did the NIT and yeah. then that's effectively undergrad? Correct. Undergrad. And then you came out here for for a master's degree. Yeah. Where where that where so I went to Mississippi State University. Obviously, there's many many funny stories about why I chose Mississippi State. Can University. you g give me one? Because that seems like let's say that's the less obvious path. Yeah, 
So what I had pride in was that I wanted to pay for my education and never really have to spend a penny yeah. on anybody. I mean, I, I didn't want my parents to spend money on me. The concept of working through school was alien as an Indian person growing up. And so to me, the only way was if I get a research scholarship, I would really get through. So I had admissions into really many, many good schools. But there's a funny story. I grew up with two posters on my wall. So I had a window, I have a shelf that I looked over to study. To my left was a poster of Baywatch. Pamela Anderson? Uh, I can't mention the name. Okay, but, <laughs> Baywatch, <laughs> yes. Baywatch. To my right was Manhattan Skyline. And I looked up Mississippi <laughs> and I said, man, I'm going to get right the, the best of both worlds. <laughs> uh, that's oh, a true story. Dear. But I had a phenomenal time at that school. And it was my first exposure to America. Yeah. Just a young person. I had never really been to the U.S. before. So the whole social experience of understanding America, I drove around all 50 states and just wanted to oh, see wow. Iowa and Wyoming. Yeah. And, and so it gave me a really good measure for what America is all about and such. And so, but Mississippi State was a phenomenal learning. And then I moved to California. And so I, this is the only place I really wanted to be at. So I joined Cypress Semiconductor. So that was my first company. I remember Cypress. Well, so I started covering Silicon Valley right around 2000, mm. 2001. So I remember Cyprus from those days. It was still around, wasn't it? It, it was the best boot camp I could have ever gone through. Yeah. It just whacked me into shape <laughs> some days, even when I didn't want it. And so TJ Rogers was the CEO then. Um, and, and his personality drove the culture of the company. Mm. So it was really a excellence and perfection culture at all costs. And so it was really great hazing ritual and learning for me. And I spent about three years there. Then I went to a company called Altera that is now part of Intel. Yep. Cyprus, I think, is now part of Infineon, I right. believe. And so I spent three years there. And I moved from engineering functions to pseudo business functions and product definition and applications, then went to Xilinx, which is now part of AMD. So I said, I think no company ever yep. worked for as a standalone yep. company anymore. So I spent 18 years at Silence. Doing so what? I, so various capacities and grew with them. And so eventually I was their executive vice president and general manager. So I ran the overall business and the sales function. So this is where a lot of the 18 years of learning really helps our little baby company in that not too many people have had 18 years experience servicing these markets. And no. um, so in some ways we are different in our DNA in that. We have learned because it's not a very easy market to understand. It is also not easy to internalize how important software is. And it's also very important to learn how people stay on with legacy systems. So all of that learning, I think, right. kind of inherently helps us every day in what we are doing. So I think what we are servicing the audience with is really AI and ML. But the culture, the DNA, the learning, the systems understanding, the channel strategy and that, how do you really get a small company to scale and support 10,000 plus customers one day? Who are your partners? What is the value added reseller network? Where is the distribution network? Where is the reseller network? So all of that is elements of innovation. So our innovation is not just technology alone. It's how do we go to market? How do we scale this technology? Because scale, right, is, is really hard, right? You can come up with a really good idea, but then it actually getting people to buy it yeah. and keep buying it and keep paying for it is very hard. This gentleman who runs our engineering effort called Gopal, 
And he says, engineering is hard, but getting customers to really commit to you is a harder business, right? And yeah. so and that's so true because you're kind of evangelizing to somebody that, hey, we've been done something for 20, 30 years one way. Take a leap of faith with me. That yeah. Going my way is a better thing to do, right? They're risking at some point their career, their company's future and saying, yep, your bet is a better bet than what I already have. And so when you came out, so you were... Those are all chip companies, weren't they? They were all chi- chip and software companies. Chip and software yeah. companies. Yeah. You're at Xilinx for 18 years. Yep. Take that from very small to what, two and a half billion in Correct. sales or something yep. like that? Yeah. How old are you now? I am 54. Very young, by the very way. Very young. Yeah, looking, very good, young. looking good for 54. Thank you. So at age 50, yeah. I'm assuming without getting any details, you've probably done fairly well working at mm-hmm. these very successful companies. Did you always know that you were going to? want to start a company and did you and were you at age 50 you're like okay yeah this is the time or like what's your partner or your wife or <laughs> think of like no it's really really a good question and the honest truth is i never imagined i'd ever start a company that's interesting and most and people so, are like very you know oh yeah of course I was gonna start no i i i think say so if i were to be in my early 40s and go back my core ambition was to really be a public company ceo Right, And I was well-trained, well-conditioned for it. And I was in a senior position at a company. And perhaps I could have done yeah. that if I had stayed on. I think three things happened. One is I really missed going back to the roots of what brought me into America, building things. Yeah. I, I really missed that. The second one was I saw the AI and ML opportunity becoming big. And I saw... Nobody really built a purpose-built platform. And I came to the conclusion that no public company is going to take a leap of faith and do that for a variety of different reasons. And that if I really believed in it so much, which I think I increasingly started to, that I should kind of eat my own dog food and get out and prove to myself that's the right thing to go do. The third thing, which is a personal story, is I think my mom passed away when she was 48 years old. Oh, wow. And interestingly, sadly, many of my really close um, personal friends started passing away around the time frame. Oh, my goodness. So it gave me a very sharp clarity for every day is a gift. Right. You know, and, and I could not see myself just plodding along a comfortable life. Yeah. No doubts. There are many days I regretted. Oh my God, what did I do? Well, yeah, because <laughs> this leaving is leaving all of this to come. Because if every company. day is a gift and you have a family, doing a startup is not the gateway toward a balanced life. No. I've had some amazing support from everybody around yeah. me, right? And so, so this is not easy to do. And I would say, no doubts, the last four years have been the most challenging of my professional career, but also simultaneously the most fulfilling. Right. So one kind of almost comes with the other, I think. Yeah. And so one of our VCs that invested in us jokes saying, Krishna, would you do this again? And I was like, <laughs> let me take a pause and reflect yeah. on it. But it is really, a, I mean, the big delta I've learned is there is no system protecting you at a startup. You're on your own. Yep. Every single failure could be catastrophic, right? And every so, single failure is yours. And every single failure is yours. And the personal responsibility of we are 150 people, I every day wake up, their family, their yeah. mortgages, their choices is me. You know? And so that personal responsibility is something that I don't take lightly. 
And it took me a while to really become comfortable. And so me starting something on my own, luckily economically, that was yeah. the easiest of all choices. Taking on the responsibility for other people's lives and livelihoods to be directly my responsibility. Because in a big company, you kind of don't think about yeah. it, right? You have a system. It's pretty hard to do a whole lot good. It's pretty hard to screw it up too. Yeah. Here, I mean, you, you could do it in a day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could have a huge, amazing success and a huge, amazing failure simultaneously in the same day. So it's really been a phenomenal learning for me. Yeah. So, but those are the contributing elements that, and I don't think I sat with this wherewith at all when I started the company. Yeah, yeah. As I reflect back, I kind of feel like, okay, maybe, maybe those are. I never knew that it was so so deeply in me to ever start a company. And many of my friends would joke that they never imagined I'd ever start a company. I was a big company guy. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so yeah. all I was uh, wore was suits. And, and now I think I have to look for where my suits are. Yeah, yeah. You know? totally. And so so life's changed a lot. But it's also been a blast. You know, the biggest thing I really enjoy is we have only 150 people. For what we are able to do with 150 people that believe in something and believe in each other, we go through walls for each other. That's pretty hard and rare to get yeah. in every place. When you say it's been the most challenging time of your career, is it simply that the weight that you have to carry because you're the CEO and these people have decided to follow you? Or is it something more nitty gritty of just managing people or raising money or trying to create a new technology from scratch. I would lie if I were to be able to quantify which aspect yeah. of it, right? But I would say, to me personally, I'm very deeply loyal to anybody that's loyal to me. And I would say that's my broader macro yeah. thing that I think I bear. And every cut hurts, you know, so... Well, when people leave. That hurts. Yeah. Um, when culture is in the right way, that hurts. Yeah. Uh, when we are not able to do something, it hurts. I don't have the luxury of an unlimited large budget like I had before. And so yeah. we have to live within our means. But we have to out-innovate the very biggest companies with the least investment, right? So those are, but I would say those are intellectual challenges. The personal burden of responsibility, I would say, yeah. if I were to pick something, I think is a larger component of it. And then just stepping back, kind of going for full circle, if we step back and look at what you're trying to do, and the idea that we're effectively, we've been building on top of 70-year-old technology, which mm -hmm. I don't think is a concept most people would know, is the idea that you know what you're trying to do is effectively insert yourself in what is kind of a once-in-a-century remaking of the technology plumbing, going back to my analogy. Absolutely. So the rush we have is we are opening up new paradigms of thinking and possibility that could have never been possible. Right. So it's a big rush every day when we walk up to customers and they go, wow, I can't believe that this is possible and that you're able to pull this off. Right. And so I absolutely think that for the next at least 20 years, in my mind, the edge is going to be 5x, 10x of the size of the market that it is today. So the 40 billion, I think, is going to be at least 200 billion plus. And what does that mean for like if we like Futurescape like 10 years from now? And you're successful with what you want to do. You know, if I go home and tell my mom, who's 77, has, is not, let's say, not the most technically savvy person yep. with all the love in the world, and try to explain to her, I was like, I, I interviewed this really interesting company. If they're successful, X is going to happen, or Y is going to be possible. Oh, really good question. So uh, you're now making me a futurist, and let's see if yes. I can go. So 
I do believe that everything around us is going to start servicing us at the highest order bit. What I mean by that is you're going to have robots. You're going to have AI assistants. You're going to have things becoming coming to you versus you going to things, right? So I'll give you a simple example. Medicine is going to become personal and it's going to come to you. You'll have targeted medicine prescribed for you, constructed for you. You're going to have telemedicine where doctors call you and tell you what's going on. You will have localized sensors where you will be able to come back and guide your own health. And you don't have to go to anything anymore. So the analogy I draw is we used to drive to grocery stores yeah. to go pick things. The world's just gone the other way around in 10, 15 years where you push a button and things come to you. Mm -hmm. Think of lifestyle changes around that. So you're going to see medicine being catered for you, services being catered for you. Today, if you choose to go to a movie and pay $25, that's an opportunity, but you could see everything sitting at your home and watching Netflix or the other, right? So every service that we are used to is now going to be personalized for us. So I think that's the biggest shift I see. If I were to look at a macro trend right. of what's going to change, personalization is going to be around what you care for, what you want, and things will come to you. The enabling infrastructure for that is what the edge is going to provide. So robotic systems will be enabled for right. that. Supply chains will be tweaked very differently going forward to come to you. So we enable the plumbing for that. Yeah. So the personalized experience is going to be done by other companies, but we enable the plumbing for it so that things come to you. Cars will come to you versus you going to cars, or cars will drive you versus you driving cars. Right. right. And so some may be longer in horizon just because of safety and regulation and such, some may be very, very quick. I mean, I'll give an example. I think even starting next year, you're going to, maybe even this year, an AI assistant is available to anybody on the planet. Mm -hmm. It's mostly in the consumer footprint today, yeah. but it's going to be an enterprise. It's going to be in industrial embedded applications. And so to me, we really are going to derive the benefit of AI and MLS that I think it's going to augment humanity. Maybe there's too much talk about doomsday. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe Schwarzenegger did us all poorly by <laughs> acting in Terminator, right? So, so there are no doubts with any shift in technology this massive, there's going to be a lot of fear, a lot of concerns, and no doubts. I think no technology is perfect. It will bring downside too. All of that is true. But the net positive of all of it is that I think humanity will get augmentation of capabilities or capacities that they've never comprehended before. And we were at a VC forum where we were chatting around the table and it's like, and this is not my words, I, mean, I think I'm leveraging a lot of other smart people that have said this is, fire kind of made human beings get ahead of everybody else. Mm -hmm. Similar way AI is gonna be a big, big level shifter of capability. So in 100 years from now, what we can do with AI is going to be things we could have never comprehended before. And you guys are building the plumbing or helping build the brains of this new era where we just have these fleets and armies of machines and devices that are serving us. Yeah. So we are very happy to be the pioneering plumbers. Pioneering plumbers. Exactly. Uh, so so that, that, that's there a good go. tagline. Exactly. Cima.ai, exactly. pioneering plumber for the edge. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly... We met at this dinner what, a few weeks ago, yeah, chatting over some very nice wine. And you said the thing which stuck with me, and then I forget how the analogy works. That's why I'm asking you to explain it again. You said 
AI and machine learning are like teenage sex. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Which, I mean, in teenage sex, nobody knows what they're doing. But I don't know if that's the analogy. So if yeah. you could explain. So, so, so I, I, I hope nobody takes offense to this. But I, I have studied this for too long. And I have struggled to give a good analogy that people can relate yeah. to, right? So no doubts with everything cool and exciting. Everybody wants to be a part of it, right? So the number of people truly innovating in this landscape is very few. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of rhetoric around it. Sometimes the rhetoric comes in the way of actual reality of where things are. It clouds things. So the closest analogy I could come up with was that. It says that everybody's talking about it. If you don't talk about it, you're not cool. Yeah. A number of people that truly understand it as a small they actually segment. know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and maybe the ones that are doing it are the not talking about it. The loudest voices are the ones that are like, dude. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so I, I hope it's not an offensive analogy. But, but we've all had that life experience yeah. going through the years, and and it kind of feels like the same thing to me. You know, right. in, in a broader spectrum of eight billion people participating in it, AI and ML is just here to stay for yeah. a long time, right? And, and in my mind, as with anything so early, so nascent, the frothiness that we are going through uh, sometimes is disconcerting. But I think as it goes through, I think I think it's called the Gartner trough of disillusion. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You yeah, yeah. go through the hype cycle and you land in some muted reality of it. The muted reality of the trajectory of where we're going is just unbelievable. Yeah. And this is going to absolutely reshape thinking and humanity for a long time. Well, good luck with the plumbing, and thank you for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I would have never. <laughs> There's so many analogies in this one interview. We've got to like separate them all. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Krishna for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends, for telling your neighbors about this fantastic podcast. That is it for me this week. I will be writing. I'm back. Um, got a couple big things in the hopper. So keep your eyes peeled to thetimes.co.uk or pick up an actual physical paper. We love that as well. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Thank you as ever. And we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.